that face us in the midst of the turbulence of this life actually allow God and God's church uh, to be able to shape those and influence in them in ways that we get to celebrate and give glory to God, right? Uh, someone said, it was Henry Nouwen who said, life is not wrapped in cellophane and protected from the realities of life. Life is lived in the hardship and the difficulties of it, but even there we find God present. I, am, I have been a pastor for 28 years and am no longer pastor, uh, but I uh, have so appreciated being pastored by Peter. And uh, uh, I just want to say this parenthetically before I begin. Uh, it is really hard to be pastor. Uh, and I, I, am, I just marvel, actually, on Sunday mornings when I come to the 9 o'clock service and wonderful worship. And uh, then Peter just pours his heart out to us, right? Just absolutely pours his heart out. And I think to myself, and you're going to do that all over again at 11 o'clock? So as we think about our church and as we think about Peter, let's please pray for him. Uh, it is more difficult than I think we even understand um, to be involved in ministry. Uh, because, and for Peter, there's just such a love and a passion for it too. So I just encourage you, let's just pray for Peter. And let's pray for our congregation and many other leaders too. But that God would give him rest during this time too. In fact, let, let's do that right now before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us of being a church family and for the journey that takes us on. Moments of celebration, moments of great anguish, but moments of reminder that we are part of your church, the body of Christ. So God, help us to be good at that. Help us to be effective at that. Help us to lean into you. Help us to trust your Holy Spirit to be our strength. And we pray for Peter, God. We thank you for the gracious gift that he's been to new community. Pray that you would just strengthen and refresh him and his family during this time. <clears throat> that you would give him moments where you speak to him and refresh him. And Lord, do your miracle, even in his absence, Lord, be at work in our church, in our community. I pray, Lord, that you would even use the things that um, you've put on my heart to share this morning in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is Epiphany now. It's a season of Epiphany for God's people all over the world. You can change time zones. You can change uh, areas in the globe, and God's people will be engaged in Epiphany. There were those 12 days of Christmas, do you remember? They ended on January 5th, and now we're in the season of Epiphany, which is a preparation for the season of Lent, and it's a season of time before Lent, and Epiphany is a celebration of the revelation of Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus has been revealed, the Magi come, people from other countries, and they see the glory of God found in the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. So as a church, we not only celebrate the epiphany, the revelation, this is what Jesus is like, but we actually engage in it. We actually become the revelation of Jesus in the world. It's New Year, and so we think about what do we want to be like, but it's also Epiphany. So we think about what is it, what is it that, the church, that the world needs to see in the character of Jesus, and how do we live that out? How do we live that out individually? How do we live that out as a small group? 
How do we live that out as a church community? How do we live that out as the capital C church? So I want to take some time this morning to look at that. But before that, just share a little bit of an experience that I had probably about 12 months ago. My role now is to be the director of missional churches for the, our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And I'm underserved globally, so I have the privilege of being able to travel to many parts of the world and see what God is doing in those places. I actually want to share some of those stories with you and show you a couple videos this morning in regards to that. But part of that is travel, and so I'm trying to figure out a way to get two passports to navigate all of that. And I end up at the train station, from in a western Chicago train station, and it's like 6.30 in the morning, and it's spring, it was last spring. And I am just trying to figure out, I feel like I'm new to Chicago, and I'm new to this whole train thing, they didn't have them in Kansas City. And I'm just trying to figure out, you know, who doesn't want to fit in, right? I mean, you don't want to look like the odd duck. And uh, I, I've done enough global travel to know you just take your cues from the people around you. They're your reference point. And so I walked up in, into, the, into the station, and I, the, one of the first things I notice is if I'm going to fit in, I've got to look bored. I'm right, aren't I? And I'm good at that because I learned to do that as a teenager. And so I'm going to look bored, and I'm just going to kind of shuffle around and keep my head down. And I'm trying to fit in. There's a, there's a guy standing right next to the door, and I, I said to him, is, is the train on time? I just thought this was a way to fit in. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Now, I don't even know now why that was crazy, but I knew when I saw it in his eyes, you are a fool. You don't belong here. And so I still haven't figured that one out, but then we all walked out and realized everybody's got their own place along, uh, along the, uh, the what, what do you call it? Thank you, the platform. <laughs> See, some of Kansas City is still in me. So, so everybody's got their place, and I was thinking fearfully, oh no, what if I stand in somebody's place? Then they'll know I'm a pretender. And fortunately, I was able to just stand, and everybody's just looking down, and they kind of got their groups, but nobody's saying anything. And then we all shuffle onto the train when it gets in, and we all sit down, and people pull out their newspapers, and they just look down. Now, here was the problem. It was a glorious spring day in Chicago. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could feel it in the air. It was like, wake up. And the sun was streaming through the window, and the clouds were just beautiful. And we got off the train in downtown Chicago, and the sun was just bouncing off of the buildings. And I'm looking up, and I'm thinking, this is crazy beautiful. And everybody else is just shuffling along like that. And I thought to myself, I never want to be that. I never want to try to fit in, to take my cues, my reference points from the people around me who don't see the realities of life. They can't experience the, the air, the sights, the relationship with people in the passport office. I don't want to do that. My question, my challenge for me, and I think for us as God's people is, what if we do that as a church? <clears throat> what if we take our reference points from the people around us rather than from 
what the church is meant to be. It is so easy to do, isn't it? We look around in close proximity. We look at the newspaper. We look at the magazines, the Christian magazines, and we say, that's a reference point. What if God wants us to have a different reference point for the way we do church? Well, I want to look at a text a little bit this morning. And it's a reference point that I think helps us. And it's a reference point that it's a picture of the church, not today, but tomorrow. I mean the future. I mean heaven. All right? So I'd like you to open it, your smartphones or whatever it is you're using. Some of us use this old school thing right here. It's called a book. And uh, go to Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> and I'm going to actually encourage you in your small groups or just even in your individual reading later on to go back and read Revelation 20, the rest of Revelation 21, because we'll only read the first eight verses, and, uh, the rest of 20, and then into, uh, into 22. But we're going to just um, uh, pay attention to verse, uh, verse 1 and following of chapter 21. Let me read it for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God is deal is dwelling, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, someone said there's no crying in heaven. That's clearly not true. Heaven begins with crying. Heaven begins with God's people arriving in the presence of God with memories of what it was like and what mattered to God and and then there is the Father who wipes away our tears. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's a picture of heaven, but it's also a picture of the church. And I want to say just a little bit about the book of Revelation. Maybe some of you know this because you've studied it. But Revelation is literature like we don't, even know, we don't even understand this kind of stuff because we have no reference point for it. We get poetry right. I mean, some of us do at least. But we, we understand it because it's in our culture. And so when we read poetry in Scripture, we can figure out how to interpret it and how to apply it. We get history, historical documents, because we read that. And so we understand these. We even get letters. Well, maybe not anymore because nobody writes them anymore. <laughs> But there are letters in here. And so we understand how to interpret them. But this thing that we're reading is, 
is a genre that's called apocalyptic. Uh, and we see it in the book of Daniel, we see it in Ezekiel, and we see it here in Revelation. But the issue with apocalyptic writing is that um, we don't even have it anymore. I mean, maybe sci-fi, but not even really sci-fi. It's just this type of writing. When I was in seminary, one of my professors said, don't you dare try to interpret what this is about until you've read 100 plus pages of apocalyptic literature from that time. Because we so easily just kind of jump in and there are all sorts of people telling us what it means. And I would just caution us, when we look at this kind of thing, we would do it with just a, a measure of significant humility. But this is what we know. It's, it's less about factual details and scientific analysis and more about visceral reactions. I mean, you even see it, right? If you're an engineer, you just, you just this stuff drives you crazy because you're trying to imagine a, 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 a city and the walls of this city are like these massive things that structurally would even be impossibilities. And then, and then you see the city and it's floating. You, you get it? It just doesn't even fit our imaginations of what actually can be literally true. And then it moves from this metaphor of it being a city and a city floating to a bride and a beautiful bride. And you take out the measurements of this city and you think, that doesn't look like a beautiful bride at all. So you get it, there's all of this kind of stuff that's going along, and what God is trying to evoke in us is more of a sense of, well, it's like this, but not really. He's like this, but not exactly. And it just feels, <sighs> And as you read the book of Revelation, you see that over and over again. But there are several features of the bride here, which is the church, that are described as the bride in her glory. So if we want to be the church, it's helpful for us to look at what the church is like in her glory. What's the character of the church? Because it will keep us from being those that look around and try to figure it out based on data points and reference points around us. There are three things that I see here um, and, and illustrated in the world around us, in God's church around us. The first character trait of the church is the church's identity here. And the identity of the church is found here in, um, uh, uh, um, in, uh, in the peoples, it says. You'll see in verse 3, it says, they will be his peoples, not singular, his people, peoples, plural. And the reference here is to the ethnicities of the church, and it's like, Everybody, every place. Now, my grandmother, Matilda Severson, who, whose family uh, immigrated uh, from Sweden, was sure that the language in heaven would be Swedish. You know, that's how ethnocentric she was. Now, it was a bit of a joke, but, you know, there was a little bit of a sense of it. And it's the way we are, aren't we? We're all tied to an ethnocentric understanding of what the world is like. I mean, it is just so typical. If everybody was just like me, everything would be so much better around here. Right? Every, it's kind of the way we're wired. And God says to us, guess what? Not only is the world bigger than that, but the church is bigger than that. And the glory of the church is found 
in the glory of the nations. In fact, it literally says that. Look with me back at Revelation uh, uh, 20 and 21. Uh, it says in verse uh, 26, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't see everything here, but I believe it says, they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Heaven is going to be characterized by glory that is embedded in the cultures of the world, the transformed cultures who become the church of Jesus Christ in different peoples of the earth will be gathered together and we will look at each other and we will say, that is glorious. Because God resides in different peoples in different ways to show all of what he is. In fact, a missiologist and sociologist, Dwayne Elmer, says this, God's grace is present in all people and cultures. As we submit ourselves to learning from other cultures, we catch glimpses of God's grace that would be unavailable in our own culture. I want to give you a glimpse of God's grace unavailable in our culture, but seen in living reality in the country of Egypt. James is going to queue up a video. I want to just give a little bit of a, a, a history of it. This actually is around a story that took place a year ago, less than a year ago. It was, I think, Palm Sunday in Egypt, in um, Alexandria, I believe. And um, a person came in uh, with bombs on his body and detonated his bomb, his vest, filled with explosives, just after he had gone through the metal detector. Imagine metal detectors in church. Well, our brothers and sisters in Egypt, that's how they worship. And so this person had just gone through the metal detector and a gentleman who was a father and a husband stopped him. The vest was detonated and I think there were, there were uh, 20 some lives uh, just totally destroyed. And uh, the response of this family to what had happened to her husband to her kid's father was actually shown on national TV in Egypt. And so what I'm going to show you is the interview. And there's two sides to this, and it's in Arabic. So if you don't know Arabic, you're going to have to read the English subtitles underneath. They're actually interviewing this mother, wife, uh, with one of the reporters. And essentially, Egyptian CNN anchor person is on the other side. Watch what happens. If we could back that up a little bit, I think. يفكروا صدقيني لان هم لو فكروا احنا ما بنعملهمش اي حاجه صدقيني ما بنعملهمش حاجه لهم فكروا تاني فكروا ان انتوا بتعملوه ده صح ولا غلط وربنا يسامحكم واحنا مسامحينكم بامانه بقولها مسامحكم وصدقيني لان انتوا حطيتوا لي ابو ولادي في مكان ما كنتش اتمنى العمر كله صدقيني بامانه يعني انا عمري انا بفتخر بيه وبتمنى اكون انا جنبه صدقيني يا بنتي واشكرك يا حبيبتي
صلبات مصر مصنوعين من فولاذ اقباط مصر مئات السنين بيتحملوا كوارث ومصايب كتيره القبط المصري يعشق تراب بلده القبط المصري يتحمل كل شيء عشان وطنه وايه كميه التسامح اللي عندكم دي لو اعدائكم يعرفوا قد ايه انتم متسامحين بجد ما كانش حد يصدق ده انا لو ابويا والله ما اقول كده ابدا الناس دي عندها كميه تسامح عن حق عن عقيده دول بني ادمين والله مصنوعين من ماده ثانيه الله يرحمه عم نسيم بطل وشهيد ومثل اعلى للي قاعد كل واحد في البلد دي يقول لك هي البلد دي ايه والبلد دي ماشيه ازاي؟ البلد دي ماشيه كده البلد دي ماشيه بالصبر بالجلد بالتحمل بالست العظيمه دي بالعيال اللي خلف ما ماتش ضرباهم وعمل رجاله رجال Twelve, thirteen seconds of media silence as the anchor person in Egypt tries to compose his thoughts after what he's heard. And the first things out of his mouth are, first words out of his mouth are, the Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Now we know that's not true. God's word says we have this treasure in jars of clay. to show that the all-surpassing power is from God. And so the real revelation here is this treasure we carry around in earthen vessels, but the glory of God is seen in the character of our brothers and sisters in other places in the world that show us there's another way to be the body of Christ. And our reference points so easy in our ethnocentrism or in our nationalism or whatever it is that is easy for us to see at hand leads us to conclude that the way to respond to people being upset with us is to point things out about them, is to get defensive and to argumentative or whatever. I don't even know if that's right or wrong. I do know this, that our brothers and sisters in other places in the world, they're losing moms and dads and brothers and sisters And they're saying to the people that harm them, only forgiveness comes out of me. Do you see the reference point? When we decide not to look at another person on the religious platform in our own communities. So what does God say to us? God says to us, I think, So let's, before heaven, get to know the glory of the nations so that we can have reference points for what it means for us to be part of that here. And we see so many things. We see forgiveness characterized like nothing I've ever experienced in my life, in my own, in my own life, by brothers and sisters in Egypt. We look around and we see a, a degree of worship and confession in the church in China that 
leads me to feel so humble in regards to my devotion. We see sacrifice by our brothers and sisters in South Sudan. We see contentment and simplicity in our brothers and sisters living in places like Malawi and Mozambique. And God wants these to be reference points for us and say, what if you knew what the church was like? So I actually think that that's one of God's call-outs for us, is let's get to know the global church. Let's understand, let's learn from our brothers and sisters and not be so focused here. We seek to be a city within a city, an alternate Chicago. My guess is that our brothers and sisters who are dealing with refugees in Malmo, Sweden, have things to teach us about what it looks like to embrace refugees. Our brothers and sisters in Marseille can give us some idea of what it looks like to be a city within a city, an alternate Marseille, where human trafficking is objected to and fought against. You see, there's so much we can learn if we broaden those. Well, I need to move on. There's another character trait of it. It's not only an invitation to be and to think globally, but it's to be good. Right after the section that I read, there are all of these imperatives about not being ungodly, and they're pretty harsh. But even the picture of Jerusalem, this elegant city with no fault to be found in it because it's structured beautifully, is a reference to the purity of the church, the elegance, the faultlessness of the church. And then we realize that we're peopled by us. And God's got a lot more work to do in us. And this is why we ask God to do his work in us as well as to do his work in the world. But even here, the world helps us. The world points out those things. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is a valuable tool for me. I use it as a self-assessment. How am I doing? Is, is the Spirit really at work in me? Am I characterized by love and joy and peace and patience? It's not a guilt trip. It's just a measure of how much more I need to ask God to work in my life. But one of those is self-control. And my wife and I noticed this on a trip that we took overseas when we took some university students over. And we had just purchased a home. And my favorite uh, uh, thing that, that came in the mail was the hardware catalog magazine. You know, every week. And I would just open it up and I would see all of the things that my house still needed. I mean, it was a beautiful thing. And to walk into a hardware store was just like so cool. Look at all of this stuff we need, Beth. We need this stuff. And I was just so caught up in this new house, new place, broken stuff, better stuff. And this was my life. And then we go to Europe. And we see brothers and sisters who are living I mean, and it's still, it's, it's Europe. It's not some of the more difficult places in the world, but we were sobered by the contentment there. We were sobered by the simplicity of their lives. And we came back and we said, we want to be different. We want, 
we want it to we want our hearts to be like that and so we put some structures in place one is we took out our budget for the next year and we decided we would find somebody who would look at our budget a friend of mine I went to my friend Woody and I said Woody I've got a favor to ask I want you to look at everything Beth and I spend I want you to look at our budget and then anything that we spend over that or in addition to that I want to come to you and sit down and I want to explain to you the reason why I want to buy it and I'm asking you if you would just do this so that my life the part of my life that's so vulnerable to covetousness now that's so vulnerable to the acquisition of stuff would be protected and I won't do it for you because I knew we could just barter with each other well I'll let you off on that one if you let me off on this one and so that's what we did and in addition to that we decided any any improvement to the house whatever the cost of that was besides what we would do with tithing whatever the cost of that we would bump that up by another 20% and make sure that 20% got to our brothers and sisters who had so helped us on the other side of the uh, ocean and it was just our sense of partnership with God's church but at the same time it created in me a purity that I needed a godliness that I needed and there are structures we need to we needed to put in place to protect us from the areas where we were particularly vulnerable and you know God is interested in this not because you're trying to earn your way to heaven we know this right we sing amazing grace and it's all true but because I want to be I want to be that person that God dreamed that I could be and he will give me the power to do through the power of his spirit and the strength of God's church you see that's our reference point it's it's what God is doing around the world but it's also what God wants to do in my heart so the church is a global church but the church is also a church that is passionate about godliness because it then reflects the character of Jesus and then there's a third piece of this and the third piece of it is the calling of the bride and it is this calling to restoration you'll see it it says here right in verse 5 it says the old order of things has passed away and he has made all things new and that all things new is a present continuing term it doesn't mean that when we get to heaven all things will be made new it means that he's doing that right now that that is his objective his, his 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 desire for the church his expectation for the church is even now we would be engaged in the making of things new and this isn't an old theme that just surprises us in Revelation 21 we can go all the way back to Isaiah and we can read these reference points to God's people being the repairer of walls and the restorer of streets with names on them we can go back and talk about this in, in this uh, a calling for God's people in exile to work for the good of the city even even the one that doesn't look like their hometown this is this picture of justice of, of Jerusalem is a picture of justice and reconciliation in the wiping of tears from your eyes now I want to share this um, I don't know if I really wondered if I dared do it because it can sound so critical but um, I, I'm part of us 
Uh, you're my family, right? Uh, so I, I want to tell you, I want to share two stories, and then I want to show you a video, and then I want you to think about what this might mean for you. Um, I visited a church, and they were involved in short-term mission trips. Cool thing. Uh, we do it as a denomination. We've got this group called Merge, and it's one of the things that's really neat about it is that we actually have people from those places that take us to those places and share with us what God is doing in those places. Now, that's a different trip when you actually have people from there rather than people that look just like me telling me what's going on someplace. And that ties into this story. So there's this church I was at just several months ago and they were so excited about a mission trip that they took. And the trip was consisted of going to a Central American country and building homes there for the people who were in, in really desperate situations. And so they would build these homes and uh, at the end of the week, 10 days, whatever they were, they were quick builds. Uh, they would invite the people that were going to occupy the homes, that were going to have the homes inside. And the people that actually had worked on the build and the structure of the house got to go in with this missionary. And uh, they were going to share Jesus, what it meant to come to faith in Christ with this family. And all of those who were part of the trip but didn't necessarily build that home uh, they would stand outside and they would pray. And this person was describing to me how wonderful this experience was. She says, we were outside praying and the missionary came out and he said, would you pray harder? This family inside, they don't understand anything really. The story of Jesus is so brand new to them. So would you just pray harder? And she was describing this to me. She said, and so we did. We prayed harder. And guess what? He came out and these people had given their life to Jesus. And it was a grand celebration. And I'm thinking to myself, what some of you are thinking, these majority culture Anglos don't understand a thing about power dynamics. Now, God can work through all of our flaws. But don't you think we would be better off if the, it is as the church with the strength of the diversity of the church where various parts understand realities that others don't we can actually represent the gospel better that way new community look around we can do this because of what God has knit together in this place and your experience, your reference points can strength protect the world from mine. The strength that we have together is what God wants to use in the world. And so let's go out together and restore broken places. Because alone, the glory of the gospel is not seen the way God intends it to see. So here's another story. Uh, one of our, mission, one of our uh, global uh, ministry leaders is in Cameroon, Roy and Alita Danforth, great people. Uh, there's some amazing people that I've had a chance to meet. Roy and Alita are one of them. And they work with Fulani uh, uh, tribes people in Cameroon. And if you know anything about what's going on in Cameroon and other places in Central and Western Africa, it's just, been, it's just been brutal. Everybody's killing everybody. 
in the most brutal way you can imagine. And in this particular season, the Fulani were the ones who were being brutalized. And so the group of people in town where Roy and Alita Danforth were uh, uh, trying to represent the character of the gospel, that it actually protected the Fulani, several of their Fulani friends from those that wanted to harm them and take away their income. So they had taken all of their, their uh, livestock and were protecting it. Word got out. And the people with power in this particular location knew that Roy Danforth was protecting the Fulanis and they wanted them dead. This happened just a couple years ago. And so they find Roy and they've got all of their weapons and their rifles and they're in this pickup truck. And they throw Roy into the pickup truck and they head for the hospital because at the same time they picked Roy up, they heard that there were a number of Fulanis that were being protected in the hospital in town. And so they're on their way to the hospital to kill people that Roy cares about and God cares about. And just before they get to the hospital, the, the, the truck stops and there's a Catholic priest on his knees in the middle of the street praying out loud to God that God would change the hearts of the men in the truck and protect the people inside the hospital. And while they were distracted by this Catholic priest, Roy is able to get out of the truck and he scrambles over to the door of the hospital and he stands in front of the door and he says, if you're going to take lives, you will have to take mine first. Now Roy is known in the community and those who were hell-bent on destroying lives had to walk away because they couldn't jeopardize their status that much. Do you see the character of the gospel? If we actually live it out and are part of those places. This is what God has called us to. Reference points that allow us to see the global church. Reference points that remind us of the importance of our own personal godliness and building things in our life in order that might be the case. And reference points that seek the good of the gospel that is the good of the world and to be engaged in those things. Now, I want to show you one more uh, video. Uh, I had the chance to be able to visit one of our ministry partners in Montpellier, which is southern France. And it's just been inundated by refugees. We've seen some of the clips in the stories. But there's a woman there, and she's not even a pastor. She's not even like, you know, she doesn't get paid for this. She's just kind of living out her faith, and she's been part of this church for 20 years. And uh, I had a chance to be able to sit down with her and a couple of other people, and I said to Anne, and she is going out and work caring for women who have, been, who have been trapped, kidnapped, and brought to Montpellier from uh, Nigeria. Uh, and every night um, they're put out on the streets and, um, uh, and used. And uh, this church is trying to love and care for them. And I asked Anne, I said, Anne, what impact has this had on you? So you'll hear my question, and then I just want you to hear Anne's response. Because here's the reality. God calls us to mission, not just simply so we can help the world, but it actually transforms who we are. Can we get that one? 
I'm so happy. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. And how has this ministry shaped you? How has it changed you? It changed me. How? Comment, how? Comment est-ce que cette ministère t'a changé, t'a formé, t'a... You know, uh, first time, um, uh, when we arrived in Montpellier, we, we came in Pastor Dan's house for a meeting about evangelistic... Evangelism. Evangelism <laughs> groups. Mm-hmm. And I heard about one or two uh, times they, they were in the street. And I said, okay, maybe uh, I'd like. So I told Daniel, if you go again, maybe I will go with you, tell me. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived, it was in the night, just close to, to this church. And it was really it's difficult to explain, but um, it was very dark. Mm-hmm. Very, we, can, we, we could feel violence in the streets mm-hmm. this night. It was mm-hmm. cold. A lot of girls, like 25 or 29 girls in the street. Mm. But I've never felt so happy before mm. in my life. Mm. Um, at church, I did a lot before, but it was the first time I, I could feel so, so happy. Mm. And it was a, a big surprise for me because it's dark difficult, painful, but I was really happy because I could feel I was in the good place. It was my place. <laughs> and I was praying for 20 years to asking God to give me my place. Mm-hmm. The, the, the one uh, he prepared me to mm. be in. Mm. And um, as I said in April last, last year when I became Diaconess. Is it the same word in English? Deaconess. Deaconess. It changed my life because um, I think um, when people uh, suffer so much, they don't have anything. Those girls, they don't have identity, they don't have papers, they don't have body, because body belongs to somebody else. But they are close to God. Mm. And I think I was religious before, and I met uh, uh, the real faith. Mm. Is it clear? Yes. Yes. um, I think um, before my faith was in my mind, in my head and it came in my heart. Mm. And I think when I'm in the street, I'm so happy. Mm. And um, those girls, they are like my, my daughters, my family. And I think it's the same for uh, each of us in the team. It's, it's special, uh, it's, it's strange, but you understand what I mean. It's, it's like we... Um, we know each other for a long time. It's very easy because we, we never meet a girl uh, who says, no, no, I don't want to talk to you. They, we are always welcomed. It's warm. It's, uh, there is a lot of love. <laughs> so that's why we say it's like a 
sickness, like virus, you see, virus. virus. <laughs> when you go in the street, you go and then it's, it's the end. You cannot stop being in the street because it's, it, it comes in you and yes. then yes. It's, uh, it's beautiful, really it's beautiful. So thank you for sharing. So this is. So may God allow you to catch a virus. Find out what that one is for you, that God has for you. So I don't have a stirring conclusion, just an encouragement and a prayer to think about what does it mean to actually respond to what God has said to you this morning. Maybe it has something to do with issues of godliness and weaknesses or vulnerabilities that you need to sit down with some people and say, I need some help with this because I want to be what God wants me to be. Maybe it is to connect somehow with God's church around the world, either to read uh, more of what's going on or to actually develop partnerships or relationships with people. I can connect you if you'd like to. We have a group of leaders that are going to Mexico City right after, uh, right after Easter to learn about urban ministry in a place where some of our brothers and sisters in Mexico City are just hitting the ball out of the park in regards to urban ministry. Would you like as a leader at New Community to be able to go on that trip and learn and engage with other people who are trying to do it? There's something we've developed called Global Internships where we will help you to go for three to 12 months to a place in the world with a mentorship of a person on the ground there that can help you discern what God's call might be for you as a part of God's global church. And then there's something we could call global immersion for those of us that are more my age and are looking for ways to just kind of give back and be in a place and work with some of our global partners in part of the world. And our hope is that those that will go out will come back to their churches and represent the world, the beauty, the glory of God's church uh, to the congregations that they're a part of. So what does it mean for you is a question that's the most critical one as we walk out of here this morning. But I, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a good, good Father and that you give us this amazing gift of being able to be involved in things that matter to you and that you use it not only to shape lives of people around us and around the world, but you actually use it to shape our lives too. So Lord, give us time now to listen. Please speak and help us to know what it means to worship. In Jesus' name.